This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. U.S. Senator Cory Gardner wrote this in The New York Times. Russia's president is intent on causing grievous harm to international peace and stability. The Colorado Republican elaborated on Fox News. That's why I believe the State Department, within 90 days, uh, legislation that I'm going to be pursuing, ought to determine whether or not Russia should be identified, labeled as a state sponsor of terror. But what would that mean for Russia to be officially listed as a state sponsor of terror? Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution. He has also taught at the University of Denver. Thanks for being with us. Nice to be with you. First off, when did this list start? I see that Syria has been on it the longest among the countries that are on it now. Well, of course, terrorism's been around for centuries, but in the modern American foreign policy context, it's been most severe, probably dating back to roughly the 1970s. And that's sort of the period when this list began to get some attention. And, you know, the importance of being on that list or not can be debated, whether it's primarily symbolic and diplomatic or whether it's material and economic and truly punitive. But uh, the list itself has been a tool of American foreign policy now for several decades. Okay, so Syria has been on it since 79. Also, Sudan, Iran, and North Korea. Has Russia ever been considered seriously that you know of? You know, I think this list was really seen as being for other things besides the kind of problems we attributed to Russia. So in the Cold War, depending on how you think about terrorism, you know, or brutality or human rights abuses, there's no doubt that we thought the Soviets were as bad in their human rights record as many of the countries on the terrorism list. But they used violence in a different way, typically. And as you know, the original popular modern definition of terrorism was largely associated with groups like the PLO. And it was often cases where the terrorists would kill one, two, three, five, maybe 10 or 12 people, often use the remaining hostages if they took hostages as a way to bargain. Uh, This was not really the MO of the Soviet Union. And so, no, we didn't really think of it in those terms during the Cold War. And then, of course, in the 1990s, we were getting along okay with Russia. And then in the 2000s, we've had our ups and downs, and now we're very much in a down. But I certainly don't recall this instrument being proposed seriously at any previous time. You mentioned the PLO, the Palestinian Liberation Organization. Okay, so Senator Gardner says some of the reasons he thinks Russia ought to be considered for this terrorist list include the use of nerve agent on British soil Russia's support for Assad in Syria and his use of chemical weapons on people there, support for the Taliban in Afghanistan, and for waging war against Ukraine. Are those, in your mind, uh, valid reasons? Do they fit that idea of terrorism? Yes and no. I think you have to go case by case. I think the assassination attempt against the A double agent on British soil is not so much terrorism, although you could argue that there was an attempted psychological effect from that as well, because there was a message being sent to anybody else who might double-cross Putin with that kind of attack. I think of it more as attempted murder than terrorism, Hmm. because terrorism is more about trying to create a psychological effect that is broadly intimidating, that inspires fear. Seems like the chemical weapons in Syria would fit that definition. 
Well, it's certainly about as brutal of a human rights practice as I can envision. It's been primarily something that Assad and his Syrian army have carried out. Russia's in bed with Assad, so you could blame it through association. I don't know that we have direct evidence that Russia's used chemicals in Syria, although it's done equally bad things in just you know use of conventional ordinance to drop apartment buildings and otherwise kill a lot of innocent people. Russia would say that we've done the same thing in various places. They would blame the unrest in countries like Iraq on us, on a poor foreign policy, because I've done enough television shows and radio shows with Russians to know how they view our broader policy in the Middle East. And it's sort of like many of the most left critics of U.S. foreign policy in our debate times 10. And so, you know, there's something to be said for the idea that we've actually made a mess of a couple of these Middle Eastern countries. And why wouldn't we call that terrorism, even if it wasn't intentional? So that's the downside to getting into this kind of a back and forth with a great power like Russia. And so it's not a bad debate to begin to have. And that's why I think the senator might be actually performing a service by raising the idea. I probably wouldn't support the idea for the kinds of reasons I just mentioned. Most of the actions of Russia are better categorized as brutal military tactics or deliberate murder or something else besides terrorism. You raised the question early on whether this is a symbolic act or one that has real repercussions for a relationship between two countries. What would it mean practically if Russia were added to the list? Well, the terrorism designation precludes arms sales, which, of course, we don't do much of with Russia anyway. It precludes certain kinds of high-tech equipment transfer that might have military applications. That may be a place where we could have some implications, although I think that uh, there's already uh, quite a bit of you know reduction in any kind of high-tech collaboration due to other kinds of sanctions that we've imposed on Russia. Uh, this would also prevent foreign aid from flowing to Russia. Historically, we haven't given Russia a whole heck of a lot of foreign aid except to secure their nuclear weapons. That program has really wound down, but to the extent it could be continued or reinvigorated, do we really want to mandate its cutoff because of this terrorism designation. So when you look through the practical implications, it's not clear how much of it really is going to affect in a productive way our policy towards Russia. Would it be harder for me to travel to Russia and for Russians to travel here? That's a good question. Without clearly remembering each stipulation of what's required by this, I certainly think it's fair to presume it would make travel to Russia a bit more complicated Uh, and perhaps for a given individual, impossible. Do we have some sense from history whether placing a country on this list has any kind of long-term effect with our relationship, improvement or otherwise? Well, once people get used to being on the list and it becomes sort of part of the landscape, the idea of taking a country off the list can sometimes be an inducement in a diplomatic engagement. So we've taken... We've taken North Korea off the list. President Bush was trying to negotiate a nuclear deal with them, which, of course, didn't go anywhere, which is why we have the problem still today. But putting the country on certainly can be expected to anger a given group or government. I remember at Brookings once we were talking about Pakistan and a number of people suggesting that perhaps we should consider putting Pakistan on the state sponsor of terrorism list. But right now, Pakistan is not on the state sponsor of terrorism list, even though many Americans would say that probably after Iran, it should be considered the second worst by certain metrics because it's tolerated groups like the Haqqani Network that have conducted a lot of bombings in Afghanistan and some killings of Americans. 
there are clearly people who don't think this administration is tough enough on Russia. Is this unusual to have Congress initiating the look into placing a nation on a list? I mean, or does this usually start with an administration? Well, I think it usually has been more in the executive branch, but we know that if you define your question more broadly to sanctions policy writ large, quite often it has been the Congress that's pushed for more sanctions on Russia or Iran, for example, in recent years. And so in that sense, this uh, idea doesn't shock me. I think it's actually a good one to debate. It's also fascinating that so many uh, terrorist organizations are not nation states, you know, so why doesn't this list uh, include more than just countries, you know? Well, we have oh, we have separate lists that designate groups, ah. and that list is much longer. Thank you for being with us. My pleasure. Michael O'Hanlon is a senior fellow in foreign policy at the Brookings Institution and is taught at the University of Denver. We talked about Senator Cory Gardner's push for the U.S. to consider listing Russia as an official state sponsor of terrorism. State lawmakers are wrestling with a $32 billion question, what to do about Colorado's public pension fund. Para only has enough cash to cover about half its obligations. Lawmakers want to close that gap quickly before it hurts the state's credit rating and workers' retirement plans. We asked for your questions about Para, and CPR's Sam Brash, who covers the Capitol for us, is going to help answer some of those questions. Hi again, Sam. Hi, Ryan. Before we get to the questions, catch us up on where the legislative effort is around Para. So there's this bipartisan bill designed to return Para to full funding in 30 years. Okay. Uh, but bill sponsors in each party disagree about how that should happen. Senate Republicans have already passed one version of this bill, and it cuts benefits, increases contributions from employees and add some taxpayer money from employers. It also expands an option um, for 401k style plans within the system. That's a plan where a worker would essentially get out what they put in. Right. Okay. Uh, Let's get to some questions from listeners. The first one comes from Sue McCabe of Denver. She says she's read that part of Paris' problem is it was underfunded during the Great Recession. Quoting, I don't know how long this has gone on, but it seems as though the state of Colorado ought to make good on its fiscal responsibility before it deems that para members bear the brunt of fixing the system. Uh, Sam, is that true? Has the state been underfunding its pension? Uh, so, sort of. A good point to start with, is she's right, is the Great Recession. So after the financial crisis, that wiped out 26% of the fund's value, about $11 billion. And the pension was on a path to just run out of money. So the response was this 2010 austerity package. And it did a lot of the things that we're talking about now. It cut benefits. It raised contributions from employees and employers. Uh, Tara May is with Para, and she says the goal was to shore up the fund in about 30 years. And had time stood still between now and 2010 and conditions not changed, we would still be fairly close to meeting that goal line of 100 percent funding in 30 years. But that's not what has happened. That's not what happened. Time did not 
stand still. What did happen? So lawmakers made a couple of miscalculations in 2010. One is that retirees are living longer than they expected and therefore drawing benefits longer. And the other one was that they were too optimistic about how quickly uh, Para's investments would grow over time. So here we are eight years later, and it's left Para with an unfunded liability somewhere between 32 and $50 billion. The result now is that by some estimates, parts of Para won't reach full funding in over 70 years. Okay, you've talked about there being increased contributions from para members and from employers. And when we talk about employers, we're essentially talking about the taxpayer, right? Sure, right. Like employers are are agencies, they're state agencies, and they're funded with taxpayer dollars. So when we're saying employers chip in more, that means taxpayers are, are chipping in more. And that is a big point of debate here. Okay, so Sue seems concerned that the burden for addressing the shortfall is going to fall on para members. Was that fair? Um, I think that's not really clear yet. So the original bill that's being debated now sort of split the burden of shoring up the fund between three groups. There would be employers who, you know, fund fund para through taxpayer dollars like right. we were just talking about. There's uh, current workers who are contributing to the fund every time they get a paycheck. And then there's, you know, current retirees who are who are drawing benefits. And each group would cover about a third of the cost of whatever solution would come out of this process. But as I said, uh, Republicans and Democrats differ a lot on what's the right balance. So it's not really clear what that exact equation is going to be by the end of this. Okay. And if benefits are to be cut, what might that look like? So one of of the big benefits we're talking about here is the amount the pension increases each year. This is known as the cost of living adjustment. Oh, yeah. This has been thrown around a lot. Cola. The cola. All these people drinking Pepsi. No, it it sounds refreshing, but it's really a pretty boring financial term. Um, The cost of living adjustment is a compounding increase, right? So that means the percentage hike uh, is calculated based on someone's total pension from the year before, right? It's not like it's based on someone's original salary when they came out of uh, whatever public work they were doing. So it goes up every year. And the question is, should it be decreased? Uh, should it be paused? And and one thing that Democrats, Republicans, and para agree on is that it should probably be reduced a little bit and, and put on hold for a couple of years. And you spoke again with a para representative about this issue. That's correct. Yeah, I spoke with, spoke with Tara May. She's, you know, communications, I believe, director for Para about the, uh, you know, and I spoke to her about this adjustment. And she says it's really important to remember that para retirees don't have another source of income. Para recipients, a majority, do not also receive um, Social Security because while they are in para membership, they're not participating in Social Security. Para predates Social Security and it acts as a Social Security replacement. So that's a point Chuck G. of Montrose made. His wife is a para recipient. And uh, if he dies, she won't receive survivors benefits from Social Security. He writes, why does the General Assembly believe that they can continue to intentionally underfund and destabilize para, continue to cut benefits for retirees and renege on a clear financial obligation because it is not convenient for them or for taxpayers in a political climate? Uh, obviously coming from a point of view there, but what are the political calculations here, Sam? Um, I think a lot of retirees and their relatives share Chuck's perspective, right? I mean, public employees have counted on this pension, and austerity measures can easily be seen as a broken promise. And that's a real calculation for Democrats. They get a lot of backing from teachers' unions, other public sector unions, and it makes it risky to cut benefits or, or increase employee contributions. Uh, what are the political factors for Republicans? We that's, say? 
Yeah, that's a little bit more complicated. Um, Para is a big issue in the GOP's governor's race because of Walker Stapleton. And he's really made this his cause. And him and other Republicans, they really have uh, other funding priorities, things like transportation, fixing Colorado's roads and bridges. And they worry that Para could squeeze out those priorities um, if it takes up too much of the state budget. Okay, you mentioned at the beginning that the legislature thought it had fixed Para back in 2010. Is there any sense that we could be having the same conversation in another seven or eight years? (laughs) That's a really good question. So unlike in 2010, the current bill has an auto adjust mechanism built into it. So depending on PARA's overall funding level, this bill would shift contributions for employees, employers, and and the annual increase. All those things would would adjust according to an equation, depending on how well funded the fund is. Kind of building in flexibility. Exactly. And the hope is that that means this topic isn't coming back. But that also means if there's, say, like another recession, some of these sacrifices from para members won't be an open question. They'll just be automatic. Where does it go from here? So the House uh, has to approve its version of the bill. That should happen probably this week. Um, but remember, the Senate already passed its version, and it's very different than what the House has amended. So they're going to have to figure that out together. They're going to have to figure that out. And if they do, that'll probably happen in a bipartisan conference committee. Okay. Sam Brash, who covers the state capitol for CPR News, helping us answer some listener questions about the state pension fund or PARA. Drought and wildfire are top of mind right now in Colorado. So why was a former head of FEMA just here talking about floods? Craig Fugate led the Federal Emergency Management Agency during the epic 2013 floods in Colorado. And while he was in town last week, he heard from locals about how prepared they are for next time. And Craig, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. It's so dry. Why why is it important to talk about floods? Because when those wildfires occur and they burn the uh, vegetated cover, it actually makes flash flooding much more severe. And although we tend to go from, you know, extremely wet to extremely dry, flooding is a persistent threat for Colorado, as we saw in 2013. I mean, think about it. And in less than four days, over 16,000 homes were damaged and destroyed. And so if you're not looking at your flood risk, particularly in an active wildfire season, then the challenge will be, you know, when that flooding does occur, what steps do we take to try to mitigate it? Yeah, I, this was once described to me almost as making the earth a bit more glass-like so that water just flows right off of it after a fire. And of course, you don't have the vegetation to absorb some of that. Well, it's not just that you don't have the vegetation. The problem is you also get mud flows that then plug up the streams, change the configuration of the floodplain. And part of the reason I'm out, I'm out here talking to local officials, I wanted to see what had worked after the 2013 floods. You know, the governor made it very clear he didn't want to build back to the past standards. He wanted to build to the future. Mm-hmm. One of the things we're looking at, and this is something that the Pew Trust is really focused on as, as policy. Yeah, let me just say is, that you're here in part with Pew Charitable Trusts yep. and their Flood Prepared Communities Initiative. We'll dive into that, but continue your thought. Yeah. So that was all the, the – is to hear from the local officials what they've been able to do since 2013 to carry out the governor's vision of we're not just going to rebuild it the way it was. we got to build to the future risk. You know, lots of people, Craig, are moving to Colorado, so I don't want to assume that everyone listening was here in 2013. Just a bit more of the reminder of the scale of those floods. I mean, I can't forget the images of people being airlifted from their homes in Boulder County. Right. I mean, you had about 17 inches of rain that fell over four days. 
over 120 miles of state highways were washed out and totally destroyed. You know, 16,000 homes, 750 businesses. We lost 10 lives. Um, 18 counties were declared. It was one of the largest natural hazards that it had occurred that resulted in a disaster in Colorado, eclipsing wildfires and other events. And, you know, we used to think these were once-in-a-lifetime event. But when I was at FEMA and in Florida and, and, and now even in, in my private life, we continue to see very extreme events occurring, whether it's extremes of drought, extremes of rainfall. And I'm afraid that if we only look at these as once-in-a-lifetime events, we're going to be underprepared for what we see happening. And you have opened my eyes to the interplay between an extreme drought and then maybe the next year, extreme rain. If, if that happens in quick succession, again, you have ground that is not necessarily prepared for the water that comes. Okay, to the million-dollar question, which is whether Colorado has, in places, been able to rebuild better and stronger. First off, doesn't that mean it, they just build more expensive? Like, better and stronger means more money, no? It does. So, yeah, it will cost us a little bit more money, but we don't have to replace everything that gets destroyed next time. And that's really the, the, the focus here is if we make smart rebuilding decisions and we build it back to the future risk, it's less likely to get destroyed next time, saving us a lot more money. And from the taxpayer's perspective, you're funding the project one time, not multiple times as it's destroyed after each flood event. And so has that happened here? And, and where, if so? In many cases, they were able to do things. Um, they gave different examples of communities where they did, in some cases, alternative projects. They actually moved infrastructure and created green space. So that the green space would be inundated and not the critical road or yes. something. Right. And they actually saw in 2013 where some of the communities had done that, like Fort Collins, and it significantly reduced the flood damages because the greenways flooded, but nothing was in the way, and it helped manage the flood. So the types of things they did really, I think, will pay off the next time we see a flood event, and those additional investments will save us money in the future disasters. Now, was that easy to do with federal money? Did did FEMA, for instance, make it a streamlined process to say, yes, here's more money, build better, build stronger? Well, you know, I think the agencies were saying that, but the experience of the state and local governments was it took a lot of work to get where they wanted to go. And they, they persevered and got there, but they said it was a lot harder than it needed to be. In part because there are like so many different pots of funding for this stuff, right? Well, again, Congress, when they're, when they're trying to fund disasters, you know, FEMA got funding, but you also had Department of Transportation had funding. You had uh, HUD got money for community block grant dollars. And you know, to the average public, this sounds like a lot of acronyms. But for the you know, state and local governments, these are all different funding streams coming from the federal government. Many times they have different rules attached to them, and state and local governments are having to make all those funds work together to get the work done. Hmm. Okay, you mentioned Fort Collins, and Pew reports that Fort Collins has taken advantage of a program to improve flood protection, which has resulted in a 40% discount on residents' flood right. insurance. These are some of the other things. There's a, uh, it's an insurance rating program that rates communities on their flood protections. And the higher their rating, the discounts that FEMA then gives to the insurance, you know, when you buy your homeowner's insurance, when you buy flood insurance, if your communities participate in this program, they can get significant discounts. So, you know, Fort Collins, they get a 40% discount because of what the community has done 
to reduce flood risk, and that's reflected in the homeowner's flood insurance policies. I gather you'd like to see more communities doing that kind of... Uh, what, what, what is it? Well, they, they, it they've, uh, they've changed their infrastructure such that the discounts come. What, have, what would Fort Collins change or do? Well, some of the things are real straightforward is making sure people know about flood risk, the information, so that they can determine that risk, but also doing things like maintaining their drainage system, making sure that they're cleaning out culverts, uh, making sure they're designing their wastewater flood system to handle heavy rainfall events, building green spaces, taking areas that would routinely flood and turning them to parks so that when a flood occurs, it doesn't damage homes. And those steps mean that the homeowners in Fort Collins have less risk of flooding, and that's reflected in the lower cost for their policies. Huh. So that's a step that their community took, their municipality took, and homeowners benefit directly in their insurance policies. In many cases, it's documenting what they've already done to reduce flooding from heavy rainfall events. Q reports that flooding is the third most common and costly natural disaster in Colorado overall, behind thunderstorms and fires. And Pew also says over 100,000 Coloradans live in areas that could flood, including, gosh, populated places in Boulder, Jefferson, and El Paso counties. Craig, do you think that some people are surprised to know that they're vulnerable to flooding? Yeah, and I think the the number of the 100,000 that Pew reports is actually based on those that live in areas that have mandatory flood purchase. We have to remind people that flooding often occurs outside of those areas uh-huh. and that the flood risk is much greater than just 100,000. But what we also know in the 2013 flood, a lot of the homes that flooded were not in the flood insurance zones. Uh, and that's one of the, the misconceptions that people have is if they're not in that flood insurance zone, then they don't have a flood risk. And what it really means is they didn't have a mandatory purchase requirement, but they still have a flood risk. And that's one of the challenges to communicate to people that in these flash floods, when you dump 17 inches of rain on the front range, areas that had never seen flooding in their history, total devastation. And many people said, I've lived there all my life, and I didn't know it would be that bad. And that's part of what we have to communicate to people. As we saw with these floods, as we've seen in too many cases where people did not have flood insurance, their homeowner's policy doesn't cover rising waters, and they lost everything. With this whole message of building better and stronger, do you have a sympathetic ear in the current White House? I think that, yes, we have in discussions with FEMA, with the National Security Council, there is a lot of concern about the cost of disasters and how do you mitigate that. In fact, in the most recent disaster supplementals, Congress has increased funding for mitigation practices. They also did something they haven't done before. They funded uh, the housing and urban development for their grants to include mitigation in those projects. So I think both at Congress and within the administration, there is an understanding that we just can't build things back the way it was when they get wiped out in the disaster because that is poor fiscal policy. We're just going to end up spending more money next time. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Craig Fugate was the head of FEMA during the 2013 Colorado floods. He's now with the Pew Charitable Trust's Flood Prepared Communities Initiative. Let's take a moment to remember a man who became a fixture at CU Boulder. Alan Cass may have been best known as an announcer for CU football and basketball games. And now let's get up and start a stampede as we meet your team. 
the University of Colorado Golden Buffaloes. He also announced home games for the Broncos. Cass died earlier this month at age 77. His influence went well beyond a PA system. In 1969, beginning with a humble display case, he sought to honor one of CU's most famous students, orchestra leader Glenn Miller. Now, Glenn, a lot of people have asked us whether our tune Boulder Bust has any connection with the town of Boulder, Colorado, the University of Colorado, or the Colorado Buffaloes, and the answer is yes to all three. In that case, Glenn, what happens? Well, for the folks out home, here's Boulder Bust. Looks good. Eventually, Cass's idea grew into the Glenn Miller Archive. Cass had family ties to Miller, who had attended the school in the 1920s. Alan Cass joined CU in 1959 as a stagehand at Mackey Auditorium. He went on to manage Mackey, the University Memorial Center, and Quarry's Events Center. He died April 18th. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. with autism to communicate with other people. And if those people are other kids, there may be misunderstanding. A new children's book is meant to help both sides. Just Elliot looks into the mind and feelings of a child with autism. Elliot is a real person, and his mom, Jane Stein, speaks with CPR's Andrea Dukakis, along with the book's author, Sue Baer. You both live in Boulder, and Jane, you approached Sue to write this book. She's a children's book author. What was it about Elliot's experience growing up that made you want a book like this to be written? Well, since the time that Elliot was in, I would say, first grade to the time that he went to middle school, I had this thought that the kids in the classroom would benefit from knowing a little bit more about why Elliot did certain things and had trouble with shirts and was always twisting and sucking on the shoulders of his shirts and other sort of behaviors, these perseverative behaviors. And I thought if kids just understood that, they would understand him and they, you know, would have accepted him more. He was never bullied. And I would say he was reasonably accepted. But I just felt that a lot of other kids would really get those kids and why they exhibit those behaviors. How did you figure out Elliot had autism? Well, I was fortunate in that I was best friends with a woman who our older children were born together. And as that child developed and was diagnosed when he was three or four, I had just walked that journey with her. And so right away when Elliot was probably two months old, I I just had a feeling he was acting the same way in terms of being in constant motion, not really landing on things appropriately and staying focused on that object. You know, we were very fortunate because with early, early intervention like that, you can really make a difference in the outcome. And we, while we weren't able to get a diagnosis because he was too young, we just operated as if. And so I would constantly say to uh, any sort of physician, 
Let's say he did have autism. What would be one thing that we should be doing? You know, and the advice is always that you deal with the you know behaviors and the symptoms. So in our case, that was OT, PT, listening therapy, social skills therapy, and those kind of things. So the boy in the book often feels like an outcast in school. Two boys are standing looking at Elliot, who's sitting on the ground, and he's putting something in his mouth. Could you read the section on page 20? And the book is from Elliot's perspective, I should say. At recess, Sam said, want to play kickball? Games like kickball have too many rules. I like my own rules. I walked in circles around the playground instead. While I was walking around, I saw some bright stones on the ground. I sat down in the dirt and put some of the stones in my mouth. Two boys walked by me, and I heard one say, What's wrong with Elliot? That hurt my feelings. Where did that scene come from? Is it based on Elliot, uh, you know, Jane's son, or someone else? Well, we looked at a lot of behaviors by a lot of children, and we distilled them all down into one boy. So Elliot might have put stones in his mouth. I'm not sure. But somewhere, someone on the spectrum has done that. There's one character in the book, Sam, who stands up for Elliot. Jane, did Elliot have classmates that took him under their wing and helped him out? Yeah, there were always angels in every classroom. And Sam, there was a real Sam. And he, I just remember when we moved to Boulder, Elliot was in first grade. And Sam was the first kid that asked Elliot over after school for a play date. So the character named Sam is really the kind of the hero in the book. Sue, let me have you read one more passage, which has to do with Sam and Elliot and another child. It's on page 35. When I finished my Lego project, I showed it to Sam. He said, wow, can I show it to the other kids? The room got really quiet. Then it got noisy. All the kids said, dude, no way, awesome, and look at the castle Elliot built, and Elliot, you're amazing. Then Sam looked at Joe and said, you should leave Elliot alone. So Joe is the bully in the story. And Sue, it sounds like you see classmates of kids with autism as being critical to helping kids out with the condition. Oh, absolutely. The whole point of the book is to foster acceptance and prevent bullying. So our thought was when children read this book, they'll get a good idea of what it's like to be Elliot or a kid like Elliot, and they will be kinder and more inclusive. And Sue, I imagine you didn't know a lot about autism before you undertook this. Were you able to get into the mind of a child that might have autism? I I believe so. Um, Doing my research, I just found out a whole lot of information that I had never known. And the sensory overload piece was especially meaningful to me. Actually, we do an exercise with the kids where we have them all make different sounds, like an airplane or a car going by or footsteps, just a whole bunch of noise. And then I ask them to do a math problem. And half the kids don't hear the question. And that's sort of what it's like to sift through all this noise in the brain of some people with autism. So yeah, I think I got a greater understanding of behavior 
And I became, not that I was ever terribly judgmental, but I became more tolerant when I saw a a child acting up in a grocery store, for example. I've heard stories about folks with children with autism and they're in a restaurant and something's happening with their child and other people are looking at them askance and critically. And I wonder if that ever happened to you, Jane. Uh, More times than I can count. And I think that's probably one of the universal experiences of families with a child on the spectrum. Elliot had this funny thing he liked to do in restaurants, and it was kind of funny. If there was a candle, really loved putting things into the candle and watching it sort of melt. But a lot of times it was just, you know, inability to sit still and needing to get up and walk around. You know, let's face it, a lot of kids wouldn't want to sit in a chair for two hours while the adults are talking about politics. So judge me or not, that's when iPads were first coming around. And um, it was a lifesaver for us. Tembo Grandin, who's a professor of animal science at Colorado State University and is on the autism spectrum herself, wrote a foreword for your book. Um, She writes about how kids with autism need to be stretched to do things they're uncomfortable with. And Jane, I wonder how much you did this with Elliot. Well, we did it a lot. So I'll give you an example. When Elliot was a freshman in high school, I decided to send him off for a service vacation in Thailand where essentially he had to fly by himself to L.A., change planes, and sort of navigate his way to this group. And at that point, he had never been much on his own. And everyone thought I was crazy, including my mother. But he came back a changed kid. He came back incredibly mature. His language was noticeably improved. And Temple was interesting. She and I had a long conversation on the telephone, and her big thing is that parents not allow their child to continually stay in the places that they are. In other words, she tells a story about her mother not allowing her to really be a super picky eater, her mother requiring her to, you know, participate in social things. Afterwards, she was allowed to be in her room to sort of chill out, but only for 30 minutes. So she has a real belief that parents of people on the spectrum really need to push those kids out of the comfort zone. Sue, Jane, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Susan Baer is the author of Just Elliot, a children's book about autism. Jane Stein's son, Elliot, inspired the book. Both women live in Boulder. They spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. Indie musicians, thousands of them from across the country, entered this year's Tiny Desk Contest from NPR. Musicians submit a video of themselves playing an original song for the chance to perform at NPR headquarters. The judges have watched all of those videos and will announce a winner this week. More than 150 entries came from Colorado, and here to tell us about some of them is Jesse Witten from CPR's Open Air. Hi again, Jesse. Hey, Ryan. First, uh, for a sense of how this can launch a career, let's talk about last year's winner, a New Orleans band called Tank and the Bangas. Grow when the sun be burning. 
Took your Betty home, don't nobody know where you go. Just know the block just got high. Because you drink, gotta be funny, gotta be quick, gotta get, get for you get. And ain't no telling what I'm gonna do tonight. I strolled up in the room full of liquor and Okay, so since winning the Tiny Desk Contest, what's happened to Tank and the Bangas? So after getting behind the desk, this band blew up. I mean, even just hearing that song, I'm bouncing to it. This is a charismatic (laughs) band, and they really capitalized on that. They're a live band, and they've become festival fixtures. They've played South by Southwest, Coachella, some of those career highlights that any band would want to do. And they've become a part of the NPR Music family. That's kind of the best part of it, is Mm. you really just become a part of that conversation they have all the time. They got picked up by a major label, of course. That's exciting. And they've got a new single that they just dropped last week. So they also have another career highlight coming up. That It's going to be a highlight for us living here in Colorado. They're going to be playing Red Rocks Amphitheater this August, opening up for Nathaniel Rateliff and the Night's Oh, goodness. Okay, well, so that's what this can do for a career. Let's talk about the Colorado musicians who want that trajectory for themselves. What, what did the entries look like from Colorado this year? It was an interesting year. There were actually fewer entries coming from Colorado than last year. Huh. But the diversity, the scatter was a little broader. We were seeing all kinds of genres where it was traditionally kind of focused in the Americana, any sound. But we got a lot of jazz. We got a lot of ska. We got sounds that we hadn't really seen exposed from Colorado. Colorado in previous years. Okay, this includes Nina and the Hold Tight from Colorado Springs. This is the song Salt and Blood. Understand that NPR Music highlighted this video, which we can't see at the moment, but you'll be able to check out at CPR.org later, uh, as one of their favorites. What did you like about it? Well, it's just a great song, first and foremost, and that's what it takes to get noticed in this contest, is just make a great song. What NPR Music showcased as one of the reasons they loved it is her voice. It's potent. It's powerful. The song itself has got a lot of raw emotion that balances itself with shredding sounds. But what's really cool about this is that the video itself is just casual. It shows the actual relationship between the members. It just seems like you're a part of their practice session rather than them kind of just putting on a show for a submission. Nina and the Hold Tight from Colorado Springs, also from the Springs, a band called Audible. What's going on in their video? Colorado Springs showed up yeah, this year. Yeah, I guess year. so. This is one of those video standouts as well. It's just beautifully shot with the lead MC, whose name is Hot, with a capital two T's at the end. He's just sitting at a rather large desk, actually, uh, just showcasing the lyrics. That's what's important about this song that has this really cool indie hip-hop sound. And the song is Up, Up, and Away. So you know you owe us peace. Listen close, hear the leaves growing. Lawn as lawn doesn't need mowing, even after seed sowing. Locate our outer shell when you're beach combing. Preach then, reach then, teach then, leave. Make sure the taste of raw metal lingers after. Bring the rapture when nobody's ever seen it captured. Wean it back before they pin your wings backwards. Sacrificial on my knees. Huh. 
Audible from Colorado Springs, one of the entries into this year's Tiny Desk Concert from NPR. And we're getting an update on who entered from Colorado from Jesse Witten at CPR's Open Air. So this week, the contest judges will announce a winner who goes on, as we said, to get a lot of publicity and a performance at NPR behind that tiny desk. What happens after that? Well, they're part of the NPR music family. That's the best part of it all. They get coverage throughout their career, as been, has been the case with any previous winners. But uh, this year, it's exciting. They always go on a nationwide tour with the winner. This year, it's stopping in Denver, which ah. has not previously happened. What I'm excited about is that we actually get to pick some of the Denver submitters to open for that show, and I get to help pick who does that. Well, that's cool. And speaking of Denver, why don't we talk about some of the videos that came from Denver bands? So first up, Latin Funk from Los Mocochetes. It's a really energetic performance here. And uh, there's the famous image of Cuban revolutionary Che Guevara on the side of the screen. What's this band's story before we hear the song? Well, they're a loved and recognized band here in Denver. They were named the best Latin band of 2017 from the Westward Music Showcase. I actually just discovered them last year with this fiery performance at uh, the Underground Music Showcase. Fell in love, and we've been loving their music ever since. They're a seven-piece band, so there's a lot going on, playing instruments from saxophone to trumpet, and they would cause some real mayhem behind the tiny Desk. This is Los Mocochetes with their Tiny Desk Contest submission, Que Viva Revolución. It's not the best audio quality. We wouldn't play the song as is on open air. But that's what I love about this. That's exactly what's exciting is despite whatever resources you have as a band, you're able to put your music in front of these major players in the music industry and potentially get discovered. It doesn't have to be glossy and shiny and highly produced. That'll come later, presumably. Up next, a trio that recently played in the performance studio, I understand, here at CPR. Uh, This band has an interesting sound. Tell us more about the Milk Blossoms. They are just a three-piece, but they do some really exciting things. They incorporate ukulele and keyboard and beatboxing, Ah. which is pretty front and center in this project. And they just dropped their sophomore album. This is the song Super Moon. Okay, in this one, I hear so much potential that if that were produced, it could sound huge. Oh, yeah, their live sound is really amazing. And I'm just excited that NPR would notice the potential that's in here. It's not the best audio, of course. The Milk Blossoms. Okay, let's hear from one more Denver band in the Tiny Desk Contest. This one comes from Ivory Circle. What's cool about this one, do you think? Well, the video is cool. And of course, they're not going for best video. It's not the best video contest, but you can't help but notice what's going on here. It's a lot of videos spliced together. So the members are backing themselves up. It's ah. just, it's kind of a fascinating video. And at the core of it, it's just one of those perfect pop songs. You'll be able to see these again at CPR.org later today. Ivory Circle with Never Let Me Go.
one's going to be an earworm. Never let me go. Never. Okay. Uh, Ivory Circle from Denver. Why don't we talk about an artist from Western Colorado before we go? This is a singer and guitarist named Jackson Emmer. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Based in Carbondale, just outside Glenwood Springs. Tell us about his submission. Well, speaking about earworms, that's kind of the mark of a good song, isn't it? Uh-huh. That's that's the way I feel about this track. Not only is it something that you can remember and you think about once you're done listening to it, but it feels like an old friend. It feels like an old sweater. There's a comfort and a warmth in this track. And it's pretty impressive after I sat and watched 150 videos huh. that this stayed with me. It's just him and his guitar and with all the noise, with all the different kind of sounds coming out. This was special. Okay, Jackson Emmer with When the Lawn Gets Dark. Connor's hurting Cody too Jack and Rudy smeared the truth They're Dharma brothers but not by blood Methadone cowboys staring at the sun How did you get the Those lyrics, methadone, cowboys. That's Jackson Emmer. He's out of Carbondale. Jesse, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Ryan. It's Jesse Witten, music director of CPR's Open Air. And NPR will announce the winner of the 2018 Tiny Desk Contest sometime this week. In the meantime, you can watch all the videos we mentioned today and more at CPR.org. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. Trying, trying to understand. 